that we can look at your word that you've given to us, a word that is sufficient and authoritative. I pray today that we would be changed as we look into it. I pray that you would give us wisdom as we walk through the purpose and the design of of what you've called the church to look like. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, if you'd open to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. I've entitled the message this morning, An Introduction to Elders. An Introduction to Elders. Let's read the section that we are walking into over the next two to three weeks. And um, Titus chapter 1. Let's start in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work." We come into a section in which we see Paul lay out the characteristics of the men that Titus is to put into order. And I think it's appropriate and important that we take some time and make sure we have a foundation here. You know, we've been a church now for 17 years. I find that hard to imagine. And when we first started, there was so much confusion as to who we were and what we were about. And much of that confusion had to deal with the church government structure that we operate under. If I was thinking about this, and uh, I stand to be corrected, but if I'm not mistaken, we were the first Southern Baptist church to have elders in Jackson County in the last 75 years. And I can't. I, before that, I would venture to say there were elders in Jackson County because in the history of the Southern Baptists, there were elders prior to World War I. And so I say that because I I think this is a really important issue and one that we need to be familiar with. 
Because if it, if it caused that much confusion when we began as a church, I would say that the majority of Christians could not give a good answer here. And it's one that all of us have to grow into. I, there was many years ago, I couldn't have given you a really good answer. I could have run to certain places to find an answer, which is always a good thing to do. But I think it's something that we need to be familiar with. And in and, and order to understand the characteristics of elders, we need to understand, is eldership a biblical model for church leadership? Because many would say it's not. They would say there is the pastor, there are deacons, and there are committees. And there's committees of committees. And, and they would say that what we're doing here is a Presbyterian model and not a biblical Southern Baptist model. And today I want us to look at this in humility, but I want us to look at this for clarity. Uh, when we look at this passage, one of the key phrases here in verse 5, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. That's a very important phrase as we get started with this subject, that you might put what remained into order. It, it means to correct. It means to set in order, to make straight. It's the word used in ancient times of how we would think of an orthodontist, one who straightens and aligns crooked teeth. It was also one who would set broken bones. You know, I uh, Life360 is a wonderful app. It's a scary app, isn't it? If you've got young drivers, it's a scary app, and you see where they are. But it's a great app because I've learned some ways it's very useful. I remember when uh, Ann and, and uh, me and Andrew were the only ones at the house for a lot of, it's a whole long story, but uh, Ann and the kids were uh, in at the beach, and when they were on their way home, it's a wonderful tool to know how much time you have before you're in trouble to set things in order. And I remember this conversation, like, Andrew, we have 30 minutes. We must get busy now and do something. And, and uh, you know, have you ever told your, uh, your small kids, like, hey, would you go clean this room? And they go clean it, and, and it, you walk in, and it looks like a tornado just happened. And you're thinking, what, 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 what? You cleaned it, and they always, uh, I say, I picked that up. Well, there's about 30 other things you didn't pick up, right? we got to set this in order. And, and if you think about it, what is the context of setting an order? What's imperative in order to put these people in leadership, these men in leadership for what purpose? And he tells us in verse 10. Look at verse 10. In the context of the churches at Crete, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We're learning on Sunday night. We need not be surprised when we look at the history of the church, when we come across people who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and people that are religious in the very way that they do it. Do you realize this is Crete in, in you know, at this time frame in the early church and we have to understand, and biblically, what is needed is godly individuals who will guide the church in leadership 
to put to silence the words of insubordinate, empty, talking people. And without it, there's great trouble, great, great trouble. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at, and and this is going to scare you at first. It's like uh, the pastor that says, today we're going to look at 18 characteristics. It's like, oh no, this is going to be one of the longest treatises of something ever. There's seven this morning, but I'm going to move. I'm going to move quick, so don't panic. Seven key truths about elders this morning. Seven key truths. The first one, their prevalence. Their prevalence. They are as common as sweet tea in the South when it comes to the New Testament church. You can't walk into a restaurant in the South and not find sweet tea. When it comes to the New Testament church, you simply find elders everywhere you look. And it's important that we understand that, their prevalence. I want us to go through, take your Bible, let's start in the book of Acts. We're gonna turn to a lot of passages, but I want you to see this because it's important to understand the basic framework as to why the rationale for plurality of elders in a local church. Acts chapter 11, we read in Acts chapter 11, as we begin to deal with the beginnings of the church, we read about the church uh, in Antioch in around verse 19 of chapter 11. We get all the way down to verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Immediately we find the word elder, and immediately we find the plural usage of the word elder. We see that it's a plurality. So one of the things that we're going to see as we go through these passages at the beginning here, looking at the prevalence of elders, is we're going to see that when this is mentioned, it's mentioned in a plurality. It's mentioned as a group. And we see here that there were elders around the area of Judea in Acts chapter 11. We also see it... um, In James, I'm going to read you this passage. You don't have to turn there. But it's interesting because James is predominant as a leader of the church in Jerusalem. And isn't it fascinating that as a leader in the church in Jerusalem, in the, a lot of people think, the mid-40s, 44, 45 AD, he writes, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the point here is not to bring up what is going on in the context of James chapter 5, but to illustrate the fact that the key pastor in the church, the key elder, one of the key elders in the church of Jerusalem, is making it clear that this is something to be expected in the life of ministry of the local church. So we look over in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 is one of the key councils in church history. It's the Jerusalem council. You could make a case it is the most important council in church history because at this council, it becomes clear that it's not just 
Jews that have salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Gentile, and it's all by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And at this council, that is declared. And in Acts chapter 15, we read several different places. Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. We see them mentioned also in verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. It's really fascinating because, you know, while there's a general use of the word apostle, that in a, in, in a general sense, in a generic sense, we're all sent out once. But there's a specific use of it. And, and, and as we're looking on Sunday nights, there's the specific use of the apostles goes away with the apostle John around about the time of Patmos. And what happens when he dies? There are no other people in the history of the church that will fulfill the three characteristics of the 12 apostles and what they were called to be and what they were called to do. And so here you've got, even in the apostolic age, God saw fit to establish elders alongside apostles. And what's fascinating is that once they die off, now we live according to the apostolic word, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, the scripture that was given through the apostles, that God had established would now be the foundation in which we would lean on as elders lead and guide the church of Jesus Christ. You see them in Acts chapter 15. You see several passages. You see them in verse 2, verse 4, verse 6, verse 22, verse 23. And here they're, they're, they're very important in the way that they lead and they guide throughout the Jerusalem council. And then you go over to Acts chapter 21. In Acts chapter 21, I'll tell you, uh, one gentleman that um, has been a great influence on me over the years is a guy by the name of Alexander Strzok. And uh, he sounds smart, doesn't he? And uh, he wrote a, a really important work on eldership. And so, so many of the ways in which I'm presenting this come directly from the way he lays it out in his book. And, and he's very helpful, and, and he mentions this passage in Acts chapter 21. And what happens is Paul goes in to James and the elders. He lays before them, in this quotation from another man, what God had been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. And in Acts chapter 21, you see the elders give wisdom and guidance to all that is taking place in support and encouragement of the ministry of the apostle Paul. So, so, so far in, in the book of Acts, you see him in the churches of Judea. You see him clearly at the church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. You see their role in Acts chapter 21 in support and encouragement of the apostle Paul. But as you keep going, it just keeps getting richer. Go, to, go back to Acts chapter 14. We see the Jerusalem connection, but notice a wider connection. We come into Acts chapter 14. And look at verse 20. 
But when the disciples gathered about him, so go back to verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed what? Elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We see them in Jerusalem. We see them in Judea. And now we see the principle of every church they have association with, but specifically in the context, Antioch, Iconium, Derby. I mean, all of these, you, you get that sense right here of, of their involvement with these churches. Acts chapter 20, go over to chapter 20. So we see Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Jerusalem, Judea area. We go into Acts chapter 20, and this is a such a touching passage as Paul calls the Ephesian elders, and they meet at Miletus. And look at what happens in verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and that's where he warns them. Do you realize that every passage we've looked at so far, even going from the area of Jerusalem out, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, all those, that every time it's mentioned, it's mentioned in the plural. And we see it now mentioned in Ephesus. When Paul writes to Timothy, so when we think about the pastoral epistles, we're talking about First and Second Timothy and Titus. Does that make sense? Timothy and Titus, young preachers, Paul is advising as to how to lead the church of Jesus Christ. And so when he writes to them, he's writing to Timothy. Timothy is a pastor, guess where? At Ephesus. So Paul's writing to 1 Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus. And what does he say to him in chapter 3? Something similar to what we're going to be looking at next week. He says in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then he gets into the characteristics of what these men and their lives ought to exemplify. So what do we see? Ephesus even has elders. We get into chapter 5. He continues. And again, you got to think about this. Paul is writing what is going to become normative for the local church. This is used by God as it gets out. In chapter 5, he speaks of elders who receive pay. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. And he goes on down, and he gives uh, other advisements as to how they're to lead. Philippians chapter 1. We see it at Ephesus, we see it at Judea, we see it at Jerusalem, we see it all throughout. Uh, we see in Philippi chapter 1, Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and 
deacons. The word overseers, as we'll see in a moment, is one of the three terms used of the eldership shepherd role that is used of this office. And here we see two offices, as we'll see in a moment. We see overseers and deacons. Now think about that as you think about the opening of Titus. Now we're dealing with Crete. This is why I left you in Crete, Titus 1.5, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, if you got your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. I told you we're moving this morning. I got a clock, so don't panic. 1 Peter 1. Look at 1 Peter 1. 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to see here, he's not going to mention the word elder or overseer or bishop or any of those words. But what he mentions here is to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and notice who he's writing to, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, if you think about if we had a chart up here and we're filling around cities in the world, do you see where we're going? We're going Lystra, Derby, Iconium, uh, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Judea, Crete. I mean, we're just moving all around the Mediterranean world. And what he says later in chapter 5 of 1 Peter makes it significant when he mentions Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And he says in chapter 5, verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. Wait a minute, what does that mean? There's elders established in all the churches that he's writing to in 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1, First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We see in Thessalonica, or some people would say Thessaloniki, First Thessalonians, we see elders seem to be implied in what Paul writes to them. What about the church at Rome when we were looking at the book of Hebrews? I personally believe that the, the author of Hebrews is writing to the church at Rome. And when we look at Rome, Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we see city after city in the ancient world, and we see eldership as a part of the church office. And, and even when we look at this, there, there's some general instructions that Strzok points out. Instructions, and that becomes significant because the Holy Spirit is using these words to give order to the church. And you think about how do we find design and order in the New Testament church that exists today? How do we live out of that pattern? Well, we see throughout the scripture that there's these instructions that the congregation is to call on the elders when sick, James 5. They're to support elders who labor at preaching and teaching. They're to um, protect, uh, be protected from false accusation uh, there's a way of like they're, they're called to discipline the elder. There's a way to, they're called to restore the elder. There's a way that they're called to um, for proper qualifications. 
they're told that, that if they aspire to this office, it's a fine work. They're told to examine the qualifications. They're called to submit to them. And then we see direct instruction to the elder, where if you take the reverse side of that, the elders are called to pray for the sick. The elders are called to willingly pastor, oversee the congregation. They're called not to be domineering. They're called to look to the future because they'll receive the unfading crown of glory. They're called to be clothed in humility. They're called to be overseers and pastor the church of God. And I think the passage, as we start out with the first observation of elders, as we think about this intro, the prevalence of elders, if there's one passage I'm going to put in my Bible right next to that is Acts 14, verse 23. And this is the passage that says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord and whom they had believed. They are prevalent. It's a normative type situation throughout the New Testament church. We not only see their prevalence, second of all, and this is the quicker one, their co-office, their co-office. We see alongside the deacons, or alongside the elders, we see this office called deacons. And I read to you in Philippians, did you catch that in Philippians 1? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. There's another office mentioned in the local church that functions alongside the elders. Now, now turn in your Bible. I want to look at a passage that I think is helpful. In Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, and, and I know you may be thinking we're, we're sort of jumping around, but I really believe that I pray this is helpful as we get into the concrete details of Titus chapter 1. But Acts chapter 6, there's this issue that arises, and you've got these... Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 6, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Who is a Hellenist? A Greek-speaking Jew. So you had Greek-speaking Jews and you had Hebrew-speaking Jews. And the Greek-speaking Jews were like, wait a minute, why aren't the widows that represent the Greek Speaking Jews, why are they being neglected in the distribution of food? And so what happened? The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, this is important because we begin to see a principle here. Now, here's the question that's hard to answer. Here's the question. Is Acts chapter 6 describing the first group of deacons? That's a tough one. I don't think it is, but it's definitely a picture of that office later on. In Acts chapter 6, what they do is they go to the apostles. Look, and the apostles go to them. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to what? prayer, and the ministry of the word. Now, here's what's fascinating. In Acts chapter 6, 
they actually pick seven Greek men. It's interesting. There's wisdom here. They pick out Greeks that are going to represent the body of Christ. They pick out the right characteristics, but what's the whole principle? These men enable by their service the apostles to focus on their main priority. Their main priority was preaching and prayer, the study of the word, teaching of the word and prayer. And what did they need? They needed help. They needed godly men to come alongside them and serve so that they could fulfill their God-given mandate. That is exactly what we're going to see as we move into a passage like 1 Timothy. Go over to 1 Timothy. If, you've already, if you're already in Titus, you're close to Timothy. Just go left. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, notice how it's laid out. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 through 7, you see the characteristics for overseers. In 1 Timothy 3 verse 8, you see the characteristics listed for deacons. And here you see this list. Deacons are to be godly men. You see the characteristics in verse 8. There must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. And then it gets into their wives. It, all of this passage here in 1 Timothy chapter 3 illustrates something. There's a co-office in the church with eldership. We see the prevalence of elders. They're all over the ancient world. We see a co-office. We see the term deacon. So we see their co-office. We see this support role illustrated in Acts chapter 6. But what is the distinctive here? Number three. Number one, their prevalence. Number two, their co-office. Number three, their distinctive. If you compare the list of 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, with the list of deacons in verses 8 through 13, what is the primary difference of the two roles? The primary difference is listed in verse 2 in the last phrase. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, finally able to teach. Able to teach has to do with the ability to handle God's word as it relates to the lives of Christians. That could be used in a pulpit. It could be used in a counseling situation. It could be used anywhere in life where the word of God is coming alongside an individual, accurately representing the truth of God as it relates to practical living. You've got a, uh, a student who's dealing with uh, cultural issues, and they're dealing with uh, how in the world do I navigate as a Christian? Someone with the ability to teach can say, hey, let me show you what God's word says and how it connects to you in ninth grade. Let me show you how to live this out. Let me show you what the Spirit's wisdom is here. Somebody dealing with uh, all kinds of issues, whether it be any type of sin, any type of circumstance, any type of crisis, what does God's word say to the situation that is being dealt with in the crisis? So the distinctive, their prevalence, they're all over the Mediterranean world. It's a normative pattern of the local church. 
Number two, their co-office. They always work in conjunction with men that are deacons. And the role of deacons supports the role of elders. They work as a team. Elders have a primary ministry focus. Deacons support them in doing all of the service so that they can do the primary function of their calling. So we see they're distinctive. Let's keep moving on here. What are their ministry priorities? Their ministry priorities. Number one, their prevalence. Number two, their co-office. Number three, their main distinctive. Number four, their ministry priorities. To illustrate this, go back to the passage in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, now one of the things, if you're taking notes, it's important to see this. If you're taking notes, write down 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5, and next to it, write down Acts chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. Because this is important, and if it gets you confused, I apologize. I hope this is helpful. There's, there's three terms. Before I go any further, I want to mention something to you that I learned just this last week. Tonight, we're talking about early church fathers, and there's one guy that is known as Clement of Rome. Clement of Rome, um, the church at Rome writes to the church at Corinth in one of his letters. Now, here's what's fascinating, because the... Uh, the Roman Catholic Church would say what? Peter was the first pope, the first bishop. And they would, they would propose a belief system that said not only was Peter the first bishop, which is interesting because we have a book written to the Romans and Peter's never listed as the first bishop. Problem number one. Problem uno, right? Well, there's a lot of problems. Another problem is in this letter by Clement representing the church of Rome. It's not scripture. It's not authoritative, but it's interesting. He writes with the elders of the church of Rome. That's fascinating. He doesn't write as the bishop. He writes as one of the elders. And he writes to the church at Corinth, and he writes to the elders at the church of Corinth. So what's fascinating is, while we have the scriptural evidence of the primacy of this role, we have extra church history evidence that even in the very first days of the church of Rome, it was not operating according to the Roman Catholic teaching. There was no evidence that there was this bishop hierarchy with Peter being the first one. In actuality, they were functioning in a way that's much more consistent with what we see in 1 Timothy and Titus. Isn't that fascinating? I find it encouraging because uh, one thing that will happen is, is that when you talk to your Roman Catholic and Orthodox friends, they will say often things like this. Well, if you just knew the history of the church. Well, absolutely. We need to know the history of the church. And the history of the church does not support in its earliest days a bishop-type hierarchy the way the Roman Catholic Church defines it. What we see, we see this eldership. When we look at the priorities, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5 uses three terms that describe the same office. The first one is in verse 1. It's the word elders. So I exhort the elders. The Greek word or the Greek transliteration, so I exhort the presbyteros. Does that sound like anything? Presbyterian, right? It sounds like Presbyterian. 
So I exhort the elders, presbyteros. And then that's one word. The second word that's used of this office is in verse two, when Peter says, shepherd the flock of God. It's the Greek word. And I only am telling this because there's three words. You don't really need to know this, but I think you can hear the difference. Poemane. It's the word for shepherd. So the first one is presbyteros. The second one is poemane or shepherd. And then he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. And it's the term episkopos. What does that sound like? I didn't hear you, but I think you got it right. Episcopal, right? If you didn't, I'll just act like you did. Episcopal. So what do we have here? Three terms. Now, why would there be three terms? It seems as what's happening. He does the same thing in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and then down around verse 28, does the same thing. Three terms. The three terms appear to describe the, the one office, the one office. I like this quote from uh, John MacArthur. He says, elder emphasizes the man's spiritual maturity necessary for such a ministry. Bishop or overseer states the general responsibility of guardianship. Shepherd expresses the priority, duty of feeding or teaching the truth of God's word. So when we look at 1 Peter chapter 5, we see three different terms describing one office that give us a little bit of a hint as to what is this office all about. People that have really studied out these verses and passages and this these instances of the word elder throughout Scripture have come up with some really good guides. One of them says the primary role of the elder is to guide, to guard, and to graze. Think of a shepherd. A shepherd would guide the sheep. He would lead them, lead them along. He would guard the sheep from, from those that would be out to destroy the sheep. He would graze the sheep by taking them to areas where they could feed. Another group of people have defined these overarching roles that can be illustrated through these three different terms in 1 Peter 5, have stated that the primary office function of the elder is doctrine, discipline, and direction. Doctrine, discipline, and direction, and, and, and a heartbeat of caring for the sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I, there was a, a resource that... Uh, I had to read years ago for a class, and uh, Dr. Whitmire says that shepherds have to know the sheep. Shepherds have to feed the sheep. Shepherds lead the sheep. Shepherds protect the sheep. You, when, you, when you look at this, it helps to think about the context of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's referred to in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4, as the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd. And when we think about this, we think about what Jesus says in Matthew 9, 36. Remember what it says there about him. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless 
like sheep without a shepherd. I love this. So think about it. How will souls that are lost and helpless find their way by knowing the chief shepherd? And how has the chief shepherd arranged for churches to function under his shepherding care by calling out an office of under shepherds that will follow his heart and his word to lead the people of God. I tell you, even though it's an Old Testament passage at a different era of time, you remember how the book of Jeremiah frames the ungodly false shepherds of the day of Israel? And what did they do? They were shepherds who were fake shepherds. And they were called out. Why? Because that's not what God intended for the people of God. So, so we see their, their role. The, the fifth one, I know we're only doing seven, so hang in there. We're almost done. Their prevalence, their co-office, their distinctive, their ministry priority. Number five, their gender. Their gender is mentioned here. It's important. I'll tell you, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because if there's anything that is on trial today, it's the idea that God created male and female according to his image, according to his design for his glory. Do you understand if you're listening in the public square, the world says that is an outright lie. So we have truth ideas on the podium here being judged. Are we going to believe in what God says in Genesis chapter 1? There were created in the image of God. Listen to what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So I want to encourage you. Society says gender is a fluid idea that you decide. The biblical order and the scriptures reveal that your gender is part of God's design and care and act of his creative goodness in your life. And when we reject what God has given in gender, we are rejecting the creative order and glory and design of the maker. You see, when we look at this, we find in scripture that there's form and function within God's wonderful establishment of gender. And in mystery and wisdom of God, God has created church leadership to be male. And I, and I, and I say this to you, if you come from a tradition that differs, I, I tell you the, what you really have to deal with here is, and I humbly call you to look not only at the wording of the characteristics of elders, the characteristics of elders is that an elder has to be a one woman man is the idea of the Greek. He is the husband of one wife, the husband of one wife. And the question is this, could Paul have used other language 
to make this mean something that often people say that it means. He could have. He was very specific in the way it was worded. A one-woman man. And that's important because we read in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, we understand that Paul, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And then Paul, he goes back to the creative order. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And, and we read that in 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I say that to you only because if we don't see God's goodness as the foundation, we will always question what we find in the word of God. You ever notice that? But if we see God as good, holy, and glorious, then we will appreciate even the gender differences and the gender distinctives that we see carried out in God's word, and we will come to celebrate them. We will celebrate them because we'll not see them as a threat. We'll see that not only are men and women created in the image of God, we'll see that they're interdependent upon one another. And we'll also see from the scriptures that men and women are co-heirs of the grace of life. And that there's form and function. And the way that God has designed his church is for men to lead it. And it's illustrated here even in the characteristics of this passage. So we see their prevalence. We see their co-office. We see their distinctive, their main distinctive. We see their ministry priorities. We see their gender. We see their characteristics. We don't have time to look at those today, but I want you to be aware of them just by simply reading the passage with me. We read in this passage, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. They're the characteristics that we're going to uncover here in the next couple of weeks. But finally this morning, I pray this thrills your heart. The last characteristic of these people, their transformation. Their transformation. I want you to think with me real quick. Go down to verse 12. I mentioned this last time, but quickly. Verse 12 says something. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Not exactly who you want be, to be brought home with your daughter one day, right? Liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Get him away from me now, right? That was the characteristic of the people of Crete. Now, let me ask you a question before you leave this morning. How can liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons turn in to being above reproach, the husband of one wife, children that are respectful, an overseer, above reproach, not arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, and all of a sudden, how can those liars turn into hospitable lovers of good who are self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined? How can that happen? It has to take 
the power of the risen Christ to transform people who are lost. The message of the gospel is that God takes those lost in their sin. I want to read you a passage uh, real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, because Paul was dealing with the church at Corinth, but it's applicable to all of the ancient church. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you sit there and you go, man, wow. Look at verse 11, though. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And how does that take place? We read in verse 1 of Titus chapter 1, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Now think about this. This is phenomenal. You mean to tell me that part of the leadership structure of the early church was the transformation of pagans who were called out by God, whose minds were opened by the Holy Spirit to the truth of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, were being conformed and changed and transformed by the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's the power of the gospel. So the first passage we deal with that highlights the characteristics of church leaders should never bring glory to man, but only bring glory to God. People have unfortunately over the years taken any type of leadership position and used it as a form of self-gain and pride. You ever been a part of something like that? Where people lord over in a leadership role? Where people have more of the mentality of look at me rather than glory to God? But I want you to see right from the get-go the whole basis of leaders in the early church is the glory of God's salvation in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. So as we get started, a lot of observations, but I pray today that gives us a platform on which to go through the characteristics of elders. And praise be to God for the marvelous transformation of sinners. We all have hope through the grace of Jesus. Would you bow your head?